This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And here is CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger to talk about estate planning, something that people just don't like to think about, do they? No. And, you know, I understand it's human nature that you you don't really want to contemplate your own death or what would happen if you got sick. And it's tough. I get it. It's a hard topic, but it is not going away. And it is vitally important that you take this opportunity to hopefully while things are okay in your life, Think about what you want to happen. Be intentional about this. So, you know, yes, there is a will. There's a power of attorney. There's a health care proxy. These are your magic documents. But if there's something specific that you think is really important, you want to put that down. Maybe you want a letter of instruction. Maybe you don't want to be buried in the tradition of your family of origin. All these things can be dealt with before something bad happens. Can you anticipate what's going to happen after you. I, I remember my my parents were determined to make sure that, for example, we weren't going to fight over the summer cottage. So they just up and sold it and, uh, and distributed the money. Let me ask you something. How was that received by you and your siblings? When it happened, we were basically heartbroken, but I understood it. Because I was, you know, I moved across the country, wouldn't be able to take care of it. My other siblings weren't able to take care of it. So in hindsight, they did the right thing. Right. And I would say this. I think that that is a great decision to make, but to communicate that decision is also important. So the thing that I would have hoped for is if we're creating a bigger estate plan and your parents come to that determination, like, you know what? We don't think anyone can do it, that you have the conversation and you say, hey, you know what? This is what we're thinking. Here's the rationale. Do do any of you actually have the ability to buy your siblings out? Is that a possibility? Mm-hmm. This to me is a very critical part of it, which is you have to be sober in your analysis, but maybe somebody's married to someone very wealthy who says I could do it. I you know, you may not realize this, but I have a ton of money. But I think most importantly when you're making some of these decisions is to recognize that you can revisit these. You can say this is what we're thinking today, but then in 3 years Maybe things have changed. Maybe circumstances have changed. That's why we say to people, try to just review those estate documents and think through if anything has changed, maybe every three to five years. What's the most common mistake people make when they're doing estate planning? Well, I think they don't do it. That's easy. That's number Mm. one. I think number two is that you may not recognize that settling an estate, even if you've done everything correctly, requires an executor's time and energy. You don't have to be a legal scholar to do it. You don't even have to have a big financial background, but it is a bit of an administrative lift. And whoever is your executor, your co-executor, that person has to understand that that's what is going on. And You know, if you're going to actually have somebody become an executor, co-executor or trustee who's not a family member, you absolutely have to talk to your family members and say, hey, Jill's going to be my co-executor because she's helped settle 16 estates. Mm -hmm. She's not going to take a fee, but I want to relieve you of that burden. It doesn't say that I don't trust you. It's just that I think she's going to be able to do it dispassionately and in accordance with my wishes. You've settled that many estates? I've settled, no, I've settled a half a dozen. Wow. Um, when do taxes kick in? When does, when does the family have to worry about the tax bite? 
Well, you know, it, it is so interesting because because the estate tax threshold has gone up so dramatically that most people are not in the in the the worry category of I have to worry about estate taxes because most people don't have an estate that's more than twelve million dollars, right? But there are certain assets that are being distributed either before death or after death that might have real tax consequences. And the best example of that is that there are too many people who are just saying, oh, you know what? Frank is my son. I'm going to just transfer my house to Frank before I die so I don't have to worry about it. That decision right there is a very big tax decision because, yes, you can transfer your house to somebody else. But when you do that, you are transferring the cost basis that you have on that house as opposed to that person inheriting the tax and getting whatever the the value of the house is at your death as the cost basis if they were to sell it. This is a very big mistake that many people make as they are trying to, um, what they think is making their estate simpler, but it causes a tax headache in the future. So in other words, you would have to pay the capital gain over whatever it is, 50 years? Yeah, think about this. Like my huh. parents bought their first house, right? And it was, uh, I think they paid $35,000 for it. Yeah. And if my if my parents had during their lifetimes gifted that house to me, it says if I bought the house at $35,000 and if I sold it for, you know, $5 million, I didn't sell it for $5 million, but if I sold it for a $1 million, that's the gain. I get their cost basis as opposed to the price, of the, the value of the house when they died as my cost basis. You can see that can be a huge, huge difference. So before you start transferring a house into somebody's name, talk to a tax planner, talk to a CPA, be clear that there are a lot of decisions that you can make before you pass away that can actually be smarter in the future for your heirs. I think we just saved some heirs a ton of money, Jill. Yes, indeed. <laughs> CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Has Eli Lilly discovered the new Ozempic? Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. There's a new drug which is called Retatrutide. I'm sure once they compose the jingle, they'll change the name. But what does this do, and why is it being sold on the black market? You know, this whole field of these weight loss drugs is really quite interesting, and it's sort of uh, blossomed overnight, it seems. Um, so, you know, for decades, I mean, for decades and decades, the pharmaceutical industry has been looking for effective weight loss drugs. And historically, the drugs that have been developed have come with all kinds of side effects. And then there were these two drugs that were developed for the treatment of diabetes. One is Ozempic, which is semaglutide, and the other is Manjaro. And when people started taking these drugs for controlling their diabetes, they lost weight. And that was sort of an unexpected side effect. And obviously, when drugs are used for one thing, but then there's a secondary effect that's beneficial and potentially even a bigger market, you know, the drug companies will pivot and the drugs will start being used for other things. Now, let's keep in mind that Ozempic is still only approved for the treatment of diabetes. But 
they've rebranded it in another dosing called Wegovi, and it's the exact same drug. It's semaglutide, and Wegovi is for weight loss, uh, eating and appetite suppression and whatnot. There's a whole bunch of in- investigation going on with the, this class of drugs, and Eli Lilly has one right now called retitrutide that is in the midst of undergoing clinical trials. Now, the only tr- clinical trial they've done so far is with um, 338 patients. Pretty small. Yeah, pretty small. But what that study showed was, and was a phase two clinical trial, was that there was an average weight loss of up to 24% over 48 weeks. Well, that's unbelievably remarkable. And that's actually better than Lilly's already approved drug, Manjaro, approved for diabetes, not for weight loss yet, but they're working on that. And they, they, this generated a tremendous amount of excitement. So what's happened is people get wind of, of the results and they start making the drug and it's being made over in China. It's probably being made uh, in this country as well, although people aren't really quite as aware of it. But apparently, you know, trained chemists with the right equipment can actually make these drugs because Lilly has to disclose the drug's chemical structure in order to get I a patent. I see. I didn't realize that. So they have to yeah. publicize the structure that anybody can just make their own uh, mixture. What's what's happened is now there's an incredible black market that's developed for this drug that's not even FDA approved. Nobody even knows what the side effects are. Nobody even knows what the safety is. I mean, the study that Eli Lilly is doing is supposed to run through the end of 2026. And if it's considered safe and efficacious at that point, then it would still take a number of months before it would actually be approved uh, by the FDA for them to sell it. Okay. So then FDA approval of uh, retitrutide is uh, pretty far in the future. So this is not this is not approved for use by human beings yet. That drug's only approved for clinical studies that are being conducted by Eli Lilly. And at this point in time, there's been a very, very small number of patients. Now, is there a significant difference in the way the retitrutide works as opposed to the uh, Ozempic and the other formulations? There is. So they belong to a new class of drugs that really mimic our appetite regulating hormones. And uh, the thing is, is that Ozempic mimics one such appetite regulating hormone. Um, Manjaro appears to be more effective because it mimics two, but retitrutide uh, actually mimics three. And so it appears that the efficacy of the drugs, just based on you know what we know so far, is related to the number of appetite regulating hormones that the drug actually mimics. And so you know, as effective as Ozempic is, the Manjaro appears, based on clinical trials, to be more effective. Uh, and the retitrutide, based on a very small clinical trial, appears to be more effective than either of the other two. So I can see why it would be in uh, great demand. So for the current studies of retitrutide, what do they have, uh, what's yet to be determined about this new drug? Well, I mean, the, right now, Eli Lilly is doing some later stage trials, and these late stage trials are, are meant to uh, look at the efficacy and the safety uh, of these drugs, but they do it in much larger groups of patients, not just 338 patients. And so they started their trial this past summer, but as I said earlier, it's supposed to run through 2026. Do, you know, is the drug as effective in the, the larger group uh, as it was in the original th- 338 patients? And what side effects appear? You know, are the side effects minimal and the risk, the benefit outweighs the risk? Or are there really uh, quite high risk uh, uh, side effects to this that would actually make the drug not 
not usable. And those things do happen in later stage trials. And that's why this whole notion of people being able to buy the retitrutide online when the drug isn't even approved and there's no, you know, good studies to say what the safety of it is, you know, people are taking quite a risk. And there's another uh, actually well-known fitness influencer who, uh, you know, is basically blatantly advertising uh, his access to retitrutide. And, uh, you know, he states, quote, in stock and ready to rock, unquote. And he, he also uh, has sort of come up with his own combination, apparently. And he, he says, quote, I have strong knowing retitrutide and Manjaro may very well be the ultimate fat loss combo, unquote. So, you know, and he's listing uh, retitrutide for sale for $299 in his VIP peptide section of his website. Never once has my pharmacist said in stock and ready to rock. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the new, I mean, you know, with all the commercials we see on uh, TV for, for drugs, maybe that's going to be the next uh, tagline, in stock and ready to rock. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. It's time for this morning's edition of Crime and Punishment with Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, one of the things I'm most curious about when you hear about the spate of homicides in King County is what's behind these shootings. I'm not talking about the easy availability of guns. We've discussed that to death. But I mean, in, in each individual case, what motivated someone to pick up that weapon and decide to use it? And uh, you told me that you actually have someone whose job it is to track this. Yeah. Raphael Serrano uh, from the Gun Violence Prevention Unit in the King County Prosecutor's Office is the person who looks for, for that in every single report. Uh, he gets the data from the 39 different law enforcement agencies across King County. And every day he's looking at uh, the reports of people who are hit and shots fired to try to find why it's happening, and any trends that he can pull out of it. So I talked to him on, on Thursday, and I said, hey, are, are there any, any notes you can share? He said, yeah. But he said there's a couple caveats. One is that there are, are many shooting cases that are still being investigated, so there aren't arrests. It's not clear what caused those yet. And also, we have to rely on, on what information we get from the suspect and the victim if they survive. But also details can change as the investigation goes on. So what you think might be the, the motivation can change a day or a year or later, depending on what kind of additional evidence is uncovered. So it's it's hard to say exactly what the motivation is. But I, I said, well, I think maybe what we're trying to get at is, you know, how, how common is it for, for people to be hit by a, a straight bullet? You know, does that happen a lot? Because it, it, it seems like, as we've seen, more violence. The concern of that goes up. Here's what he had to say. Based on the data that we have available to us, it is uncommon that someone that is completely unrelated to the incident is the victim of a fatal shooting. To the extent that we are able to see this, we're looking at less than 3% of our total victims going back as far as the data that we have available to us would have been considered completely unintended targets. So it is a very uncommon occurrence. There's only a handful of cases where we see a stray bullet that is not a common occurrence at all. Right. And it's always a terrible thing when somebody gets, uh, gets shot. But what he seems to be saying is, in most cases... There's been some kind of encounter or relationship between the suspect and the victim before the suspect opens fire. Right. That's exactly right. And 
just because you know somebody doesn't mean that the shooting is justified. There's, there are cases where you might know somebody because you live in the same apartment complex or they became fixated on you. Or more often, if there was some kind of argument and then one person escalates it by shooting the other person. We see often cases that are, are more clear in domestic violence situations or armed robberies. And drive-by shootings are probably the most common where we see random people hit. So I'm not sure if that stat is more reassuring that you're unlikely to get hit by a straight bullet in King County, even with the increase in shootings, because still there are so many unjustified shootings where you see the reasons when you do have that information from investigators and it and it still doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there is one type of homicide, though, where you're more likely to be uh, attacked by somebody you didn't know. And that's a vehicular homicide, right? Right. Exactly. Just by the nature of that crime. I was talking to Amy Friedheim about that, who leads our felony traffic unit. And she said, you know, 90 plus percent of those cases are are totally random. And so that's, you know, people who are going to Costco, people who are on their way home from work who are hit and, you know, their lives have changed forever or, or the life has ended by somebody being reckless. Yeah, which is very sad. Okay, let's uh, talk about organized retail theft. Something else that really annoys people were a group of uh, shoplifters swarm a store and they rip off as much as they can. But because each individual item is relatively small, they get off with uh, misdemeanors. Uh, there's a way to create some serious accountability by uh, cooperating with other cities where these groups may have pulled off the same thing. So tell me how that works. You know, former King County Sheriff Surar asked exactly that question. Uh, on Thursday, there was an event with the Bellevue Chamber of Commerce where King County Prosecutor Lisa Mannion and Seattle City Attorney Ann Davison were among the panelists. And, and here was their answer for that, along with Sue's question. The King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office doubled the number of organized retail theft charges brought against both suspects from the year prior. And there was a strong collaboration between both of your offices. Tell us a bit about how your two agencies have partnered. I have a prosecutor in my office that is designated to review all retail crimes. That prosecutor also works really closely with loss prevention officers in all of our major retail establishments, also makes herself accessible to the mom and pop shop owners. We also work closely with law enforcement and we share information on a regular basis with our city attorney and we're willing to do that with all of our city attorneys and all of our cities in King County. Some of the thefts that we see, particularly the ones that showed up on TV where people would go in with, with bags and just sweep shelves of merchandise into the bag and walk out the store. Many of those thefts are at the misdemeanor level. But when we share information with our city attorney partners, we can aggregate the value of loss and bring felony charges for greater accountability. And Ann and I have been doing that for over 10 months now, and it's having an impact. That's King County Prosecutor Lisa Mannion, and uh, here's Ann Davison, the Seattle City Attorney. It's important for everyday people to understand that there ha wasn't that collaboration prior uh, from my predecessor, and so uh, I established that with Lisa's predecessor, and, and I'm so thankful that she has continued that with me because, really, if we're going to see a positive impact on public safety, uh, it has to be. It doesn't cost us anything to talk, but it costs all of us greatly if elected <coughs> leaders do not talk. I see. So whereas these crimes, if you just take the crime, let's say, that happens in Bellevue, that's only a misdemeanor. But if you add it to the same crime that these same people committed in Seattle or someplace else, now you can put them away for some serious time. Right. Yeah, what you don't want to have, and, and, and what was there before, Ann Davison 
was the city attorney in Seattle is the case is being worked on independently. You find a whole lot of crossover. Um, and the more you can communicate to bring all that information before the court to say, hey, this is the whole context that you need to know that you might not know from just this one police report. The more we can do that, the stronger those arguments are, not because we want to ruin somebody's life, but we want the behavior to stop. And clearly showing the full picture makes that much more likely. Casey McNerthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Thank you, Casey. Thanks a lot, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. A few years ago, Sam and his friends started a tradition of having breakfast at his grandmother's house every week. Well, tragically, Sam was killed in a hit and run last year. But CBS's Steve Hartman reports instead of the breakfast club folding, it grew. They come together at the crack of dawn from all directions, converging on this tiny house in St. Louis, Missouri, for their weekly Wednesday visit with 66-year-old Peggy Winkowski. It's raining. Grandma Peggy brings everyone together. She's just like a built-in grandma to all of us. She cares for us a lot. She really cares for us. The students who visit Grandma Peggy attend Bishop DeBerg High School and are part of what they call the Wednesday Breakfast Club. Seeing the spread, you can understand why kids might want to come here. But what isn't so clear is how Peggy got roped into hosting. The Wednesday Breakfast Club actually used to meet at this diner. Until one day, a kid named Sam Crow said, you know, my grandma could cook better than this. So the next Wednesday, they showed up at her doorstep. I'm like, okay. And they came all school year every Wednesday. That was back in 2021, and it continued merrily until that day when all joy was lost. About a year and a half ago, Peggy's grandson, Sam, a sophomore at Bishop DeBerg, was killed in a hit and run. The boy was beloved. So, of course, breakfast was the last thing on anyone's mind. And yet... The very next Wednesday, and virtually every Wednesday since during the school year, the kids have returned to Grandma Peggy's in numbers far greater than before. Sam would be so proud. Look at what he started. Everyone coming together for a heaping helping of healing. It melts my heart. It's really not about the food. It's just about being together. We benefit from her. She benefits from us. It's like we feed off each other. And we're, like, keeping his memory alive. So, yeah. Good morning, guys. Everyone grieves differently. But those who manage it best always seem to blanket themselves with kindred spirits, sharing the burden, teaching each other to laugh again, and building tradition to make sure those memories are as snug and sustaining as a warm meal at Grandma's. This is the best morning. Steve Hartman, on the road in St. Louis. Makes Wednesday so much fun. Another great story. Oh, I love it. And now from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9 o'clock. Here he is, G. Scott. What's up, everybody? Good morning. Good did morning. The, uh, did the team live up to expectations yes, on Sunday? They won. The expectations that they were beat the Arizona Cardinals, and that happened. It is hard to get wins in the National Football League. Everything on paper is on paper, but the games are played. Example, um, the Detroit Lions were supposed to beat the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens absolutely destroyed 
the Detroit Lions yesterday, like 37 to 6. I'm bringing that up to just say this. The Arizona Cardinals coming into this game were 1 and 5. And they came in, and their quarterback is okay, not that great. The Seahawks defense held him to 145 yards passing. They held him and did to them, to the Arizona Cardinals, what they were supposed to do defensively. Now, offensively, that's where there's a bit of where, like, mm, the Seahawks have been struggling a little bit. Which we knew. Was that all due to injuries, though, on the O-line, or is that just they haven't synced up yet? They just, uh, hmm. I don't know if we are seeing the best of what Geno Smith can be mm. right now. Mm. The offensive line actually played well Great. yesterday. Mm-hmm. They did. The running game was decent. Uh, Kenneth Walker III did his job, no doubt about it. But I'm just glad that that game was at home at Lumen Field. That's what I was wondering. Are we going to be a, become a team that's dependent on the home crowd too much? Well, everybody's kind of dependent a little bit on the home crowd, right? It's just a little bit easier. You go through your routine on Friday night. You can hang out and sleep at your house on Saturday. You go to the team hotel. On Sunday, you just kind of ride right in. Whereas when you go on the road, your, your routine's a little bit different. The Seahawks are four and two. I want to celebrate that. They're playing good football. They're winning games. Again, sometimes it's ugly, but you'd rather get an ugly win, right, than a pretty loss. Pretty loss. So, <laughs> are there pretty losses, Gene? No, no. no. But um, here's where, if you're hearing hesitation in my voice, and I shouldn't have that right now because I should enjoy the four and two record that the Seahawks have, Colleen. But what you're hearing in me are the next nine games. Yeah. You're a little nervous. I'm, I mean, a lot of nervous. Yeah. The next nine games are going to be something. This Sunday is the throwback game, right? The throwback game is going to be the Cleveland Browns coming into town. What does that mean, the throwback the, game? Uh, the retro, the jerseys, oh, the old oh, school okay. jerseys, it, right? I thought you meant like playing the It's kind of a throwback. <laughs> no, no. Uh, the Cleveland Browns are coming to town. And then after the Cleveland Browns, the Seahawks will travel to the Ravens. And then after the Ravens, you got the Commanders. And then, oh, the Niners, like, twice and then the Rams and then you got the uh uh Eagles. So again, this this team if they and if we and all of us as fans, if there is an expectation like, yeah, G, Colleen, Dave, I expect for them to be in the playoffs this season. I think A, we can all agree that yes, that's the expectation. Yes. If the Seahawks don't start to play better mm. on offense. There is no playoffs this season. And that's just gelling, or like you said, if Geno gets healthier and we see all that he can offer. It, all of it. Okay. It, it could be whether it's health, whether it's getting in sync, whether it's Geno being better. I'm saying the offense. I think the defense is really, they're ge- gelling. They're doing well. There's a lot of excitement on the defense. And I'm not saying that the offense hasn't done it. Obviously, they've done enough to win four games. I'm just saying in my heart of hearts, mm-hmm. if they don't get better, I don't believe that they will be able a playoff team at the end of the season. Well, now I don't know if I can sleep tonight, but thank you for the heads up. Yeah. Right. You can't sleep, bro? <clears throat> well, after a report like that, yeah. I'm going to be worrying all week now. Don't y'all want me to be honest when I come talk no, to you? No, I do. Absolutely. I'm just telling be you. Honest, just, be honest. Just do be you honest. Do you wish we were going to play the Chiefs this year so we could see Taylor <laughs> Swift? 
<laughs> no. Whole different subject. No, I want to see. I, I would rather see um, Patrick's brother, Jackson Mahomes. Totally. I love him so much. He's great, yeah. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock. We're taking now live to Jerusalem and CBS's Linda Gradstein. Linda, of course, they're not going to tell us exactly when uh, when they're going to move in, but can you describe some of the preparations that are underway? Sure. I mean, there are tens of thousands of reservists and thousands of tanks massed on the border with Gaza. Um, and it's been almost two weeks already that it's been like that. And sort of everybody is waiting for this ground invasion. During that time, Israel has continued its air attacks. There are reports, by the way, and I, I want to stress these are unconfirmed reports, that one of the reasons that Israel is waiting is that there are negotiations underway uh, indirectly between, uh, you know, American and Qatari uh, with Hamas to release 50 of the hostages who are dual nationals. That's, you know, American-Israelis, French-Israelis, German-Israelis, British. And uh, so that the United States is kind of pressuring Israel to hold off, hoping that 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 prisoner, those hostages will be released. Again, these are unconfirmed reports, but 50 of the two 222. That number's gone up, by the way, today. There are 222 hostages, and 50 of them are dual citizens and could potentially be released. I'm, I'm curious as to Israel's reaction to U.S. pressure here, because I'm thinking, what would motivate Hamas to release those hostages, since it appears those hostages are what's delaying the invasion? Well, first of all, Hamas would still have another, you know, 170 hostages even after that. And I think that, you know, Hamas and Israel realize that this is also a battle of sort of spin and uh, trying to get public opinion. In fact, Israel today invited foreign journalists to view um, videos from body cams of the Hamas murderers who came in, uh, you know, and and killed and murdered women and children. And, and, and the sites are just horrible. Um, so, you know, Israel is trying to show that Hamas, you know, is this terrorist organization and Hamas is trying to show that it has, you know, a, it's it's humanitarian, it's not completely evil. Um, so I think that, that part of it is the battle for the spin. And I think that, you know, Hamas is, is can, can give the excuse, well, they're dual nationals. And in fact, uh, some of the families of the hostages are concerned and say, well, what about my 85-year-old grandmother who's not a dual citizen um, you know of these 222 at least 30 are little children there are some children who are there without their parents imagine a four-year-old in Hamas captivity for you know two and a half weeks I mean I, it's it just it's hard to just imagine this there are really elderly people now again it's not clear how many of them are alive and it's possible that some of them were wounded when they uh, you know were taken by Hamas and have since died we don't know what kind of medical care they've been receiving there was one video released last week of a 21 year old French Israeli hostage and showing her getting medical care but again was that a, a single case was that so we, we honestly don't know uh, and obviously none of this is being made public yeah well this is all devastating I mean I saw the uh, Israeli military released some of the documents they found on the on the uh, bodies of uh, the, the killed uh, and captured Hamas fighters 
which which said things like uh, gather hostages, move them to a single place, shoot anybody who doesn't cooperate, uh, kill this person, kill that. I mean, this this whole business is absolutely brutal. So there's there's no chance of any alternative way of settling this at this point, huh? Than just to have an invasion and kill more people. I, I, I don't see, you know, Israel has said that it can no longer coexist with Hamas, that Hamas is a terrorist organization, uh, that you cannot make a deal with Hamas. You know, interestingly, the Israeli policy until now had been uh, to sort of try to split the Palestinians between Hamas, in Ga- which controls Gaza, and Fatah, which controls the West Bank. And uh, there's even a quote from 2019 from Benjamin Netanyahu saying, well, if we want there not to be a Palestinian state, we have to encourage Hamas because that'll split the Palestinian people. But I think there's now been a decision that Israel wants to just completely get rid of Hamas, the military leadership, the political leadership, uh, the Shin Bet security services has even put together a special unit to find all of the uh, Hamas gunmen who participated in uh, the massacre. And so I think that Hamas is done. What is going to come in its place, nobody knows. Is Israel going to try to get the Palestinian Authority to take Gaza? Is Israel going to try to get the international community to take Gaza? Is Israel going to reoccupy Gaza and the, you know, 2.2 million people who live there and have to run the schools and the garbage? Gaza is very, very, very poor. Even before this invasion, 95% of the water in Gaza was not drinkable, according to the World Health Organization. So it's going to be whatever happens, it's not good, and it's certainly not good for the people of Gaza. No, and uh, I think everybody can understand the necessity of getting rid of Hamas. But, of course, easier said than done, and, and they've had all this time, I assume, to hide themselves and protect themselves uh, with hostages, right? You know, one would think, I mean, Israel says that the Hamas leadership is hiding in underground tunnels and bunkers. Um, You know, you're talking about thousands of Hamas gunmen, obviously well-trained. So, you know, yes, Israel says it's going to have a ground invasion and that there's no other choice. Israel continues to say that anybody in northern Gaza should move south uh, and has the humanitarian aid, by the way, is only coming in through the Egyptian Rafah border, and uh, it's not enough. Uh, there were two convoys of aid that came in over the weekend, uh, but the uh, United Nations says that they need about 100 trucks a day, uh, and that wow. the humanitarian situation in Gaza is getting worse and worse. Wow. And so wouldn't you think that the, the, the Hamas fighters would then just sprinkle themselves among that mass of people in the South? Well, that's what one would think, but but apparently Israel believes that they are in sort of underground bunkers and safe rooms in the north rather than going with all of these other people to the south. Every day Israel kind of, you know, announces which senior Hamas leaders uh, it killed overnight. You know, is it true? Who knows? You know, there's so much spin on both sides and so much propaganda on both sides that it's really hard to know what the truth is at this point. And are you relatively safe in Jerusalem, or are they still firing off rockets? 
No, there haven't been rockets now for a few days. Um, Hamas has fired a total of 7,000 rockets. They're believed to have about the same number still, so they've used about half of their uh, arsenal. But Jerusalem's pretty far, so you're talking about longer-range rockets. There, Yesterday, uh, there were a few rockets on the outskirts of Jerusalem, but, you know, I, I keep thinking about uh, people who live, and, you know, a lot of people have been evacuated. You're talking about 200,000 people yeah. from uh, both communities near Gaza and communities near Lebanon who've been evacuated. And in fact, they just announced that basically hotels and guest houses are completely full and anybody who doesn't have a place to stay will be staying in like a tent city in Tel Aviv, which is kind of hard to imagine. Um, But, uh, you know, and and one of the sort of heartwarming things is that strangers have opened their, their homes to strangers and have said, I have, you know, a guest room, I can take this many people. So there are people who are just taking in refugees. At the same time, they want, you know, some of those communities near Gaza have 30 seconds to get to a safe room. Uh, You know, if a rocket is fired in Jerusalem, we have a minute and a half. A minute and a half is a long time. (laughs) So it's pretty safe where I am. What a way to live. Linda Gradstein talking to us live from Jerusalem. Linda, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.